This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Joe Gennaro of the Dead Milkman and many other bands. Uh, today is March 7th, 2013. Uh, we are doing this interview at the Mariposa Food Co-op in beautiful West Philadelphia, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hello, Joe. Hey, Joseph. Uh, uh, so, I guess we'll start. You want to tell me where you were born and where you were born? Year 1962 city of Coatesville and a hospital that no, is no longer there. Okay. And what was the Coatesville? Did you grow up in Coatesville? No. I grew up in a little town called Wagontown, Wagontown. Uh, adjacent to Coatesville. <laughs> it's, a, it's in Pennsylvania, Chester County. Okay. Kind of bucolic. Mm -hmm. So how was life there in, in your young days? It was pleasant. There's... You know, it was, it was, it was the life. Mm -hmm. Great place to raise kids. Yeah. There, there really was a, a cow field across the street, right across the street from our house. A you pasture of cows. Did cows ever? And, uh, no, not really. Yeah. Okay. I didn't really hang out with them. So, young Joe, uh, what, what, you know, what music are you listening to or what sort of books are you reading, you know, in your kind of formulative years prior to punk? Prior to... Knowing about punk, yeah. <clears throat> my one of my earliest memories of reading a book about music was uh, when I was in junior high school. I ordered a book about the birds, and the reason I ordered it is because it, it came with a record. Mm -hmm. uh, a book a, about the birds, the it came, movie, or, or birds B Y R D S. Oh, the, oh, the See, band. We had in 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 uh, elementary and junior high school. We had. This thing called Scholastic Books. I don't know if people still have it, but yeah, I had it when I was a kid. I don't yeah, know. so you, the, the teacher would pass out the the list of books you could order, and we'd tick off the ones we wanted mm -hmm. and yeah, pay, I did, I did pay the for thing. them, yeah. and then get you know when the when the order came around. And we also had a free free reading time. I don't I don't remember exactly the frequency. Maybe once a week, or there would be a time allotted that you could everybody everybody could read their books whatever they wanted to bring it to read. Mm -hmm. right. But I I, uh, I ordered this one because it came with a record, and I love records. And it's about, it was a biography of the birds. It came with a record of EP, a seven-inch EP with four songs. Mm -hmm. Two of which, if I remember, were Bob Dylan songs. And that's how I, that's how I learned who Bob Dylan was, and I went and so got So what was it, like, Eight Miles High, or, you know, one Eight of Miles High was on yeah. there, My Back Pages, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so you want to be a rock and roll star mm -hmm. and Chimes of Freedom. Those right. were the songs I remember them. Yeah. <laughs> All four songs. Really good songs, too. And that was, that was my introduction to both the birds and, and then that's the avenue I took to learning about Bob Dylan and I just fell in love with the, with the Bob Dylan records I bought. So you were in, in elementary school? No, I was in junior high school. Junior high, okay, yeah. And I liked the Beatles, too. Um, you know, I, I listen to radio, I listen to Top 40 radio, I listen to <laughs> music, and I loved records, people gave me records, my, my uncle had a jukebox in a, in a, in, in a restaurant he owned for a while, and he, I remember he gave, gave, gave me the records that would get thrown otherwise get tossed. Mm -hmm. Did so they I get had a collection really of at that point? Like by the time you yeah, they weren't too scratchy, but there's, but I would probably ruin them myself. But I, I remember, you know, records like Judy in Disguise. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, cool. Hey Joe by The Leaves. These these are singles that I got out of his jukebox. So that's that's my early years and uh, with music and uh, one of those records was a Beatles record. Um, and it was in the jukebox, and I loved that one. Was it a particular? I mean, you remember which one? It was. Yeah, it was "Hello Goodbye," "I Am the Walrus," and um, eventually, my by the time I got to high school, my my favorite uh, artists were Bob Dylan and the Beatles, mm -hmm. and I gravitated towards you know the peripheral thing, like the the thing, the other bands that are sort of on. Related, like the band, I like the, that band, the band. Mm -hmm. 
things like that, and then the Beatles solo projects. And right, chiming Rickenbackers. <laughs> chiming yeah. Rick, yeah. yeah. And the Burns and things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. all, all that 60s kind of stuff. So I was, I was sort of stuck in the 60s and in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of like Big Star. <laughs> yeah. uh, so now, it was, was the coming of punk something that you were cognizant of at the time, and was it something that was kind of on your, your range? Um, the first first awareness I had of it was catching just by chance a news story of it was sort of had the Sex Pistols in a really brief uh, thing on TV of them performing mm -hmm. and I forget exactly the context I don't even remember what channel it was on and my parents were watching and I just happened to see it and that was that just clicked with me. I was like, I got to find out more about this mm -hmm. kind of music. And I, I'd go to the library, um, our Chester County library, and read, because I liked, I liked record. I'd, I'd always read a high fidelity and stereo review magazines mm -hmm. in the library for specifically for their record reviews to see. And they, and stereo review, I remember, was pretty cool about reviewing the punk and new wave stuff. So I'd take their lead and if they like something, then I'd go search it out. Was it possible yeah. to find these sort of things in, in that kind of area? Uh, yeah, actually. I found, I found Ramones and Clash. I found all this stuff in, in Sam Goody's record shop in, in the Exton Square Mall, believe it or not. And a friend of mine, uh, this guy named Tom, who also went to school at where I went to school, worked at it there sometimes, and, and he would give me recommendations as well. But maybe he had some influence on what they stocked, I don't know. But he was into punk. He was really the only other person I knew in school that like dressed like a punk. I didn't dress like a punk. Right. Or he had this kind of new wave punk kind of dress to him, and, which I thought was kind of brave. Mm. But, Did uh, that not go over well with uh, your I don't know. students? I don't I, I, okay. yeah, it, I don't even know how much. I tried to get some, some of my friends to like the Ramones, and it... And, <laughs> they didn't take to it. Mm. <laughs> like, a friend of mine who liked the Beatles, I thought, well, who might like the Ramones? I remember lending him uh, Road to Ruin, which is the first Ramones rec record I got. No, Rock to Russia, that was the first one I got. That's the one I lent to him. And he was just like, eh, whatever. <laughs> it's like, so, so, so the music that would, I mean, it really excited me, that, that record. Mm -hmm. I love uh, it kind of reminded me of the stuff I liked from the 60s jukebox records I liked. Kind of stripped down. Stripped down, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Basic. Not three or four chords. Eight, nine minute songs. Yeah. yeah. Not that I, you know. Oh. I, I, I tried to give Yes and, and Pink Floyd a chance. I, I didn't really, it didn't really gel with me at that particular time, the prog rock. Mm. So are you aware of um, the sort of the magnitude of this movement and did something of it appeal to you, uh, you know, other than the music, like something of, you know, the outsider status or the politics of it or something like that? Yes, the politics appealed to me, like the clash. Um, probably, probably through my parents, I was more left-leaning. I, I also, I, I remember I, I read Mother Jones magazine when I was in high school. I had a subscription to that. So I was on the left side of things back then. Uh, so I did, uh, I did, I did, uh, the politics appealed to me of the clash. Right. So what's the and point where you, music. I'm sorry, where you start to come into, say, going to shows or forming a band that, you know, is connected to this? When I, when I moved to Philly to go to Temple. And when, what year is this I, about? Um, it's 1980. Had you been to Philadelphia before? It was late 1980. Uh... Yeah, I went, I, I went to Philly to s never to see a live show, mm -hmm. uh, but I did go to see movies a couple times. That I TLA? It, and I also, uh, I don't remember if I went, I don't think at the TLA now. I, I, the first time I went to the TLA was when I was in college, but there was like a film, a Beatles film festival at, I think the Tower Theater mm -hmm. in like 79 or I, maybe 78, one of those years, I forget. I went with my one of my best friends, my Beatles friend, mm -hmm. <laughs> Beatles fan friend. Right. 
there weren't too many people in the late 70s that would admit to liking the Beatles in high school. Yeah, it seems like strange <laughs> that it's only, you know, so few years later. Yes, yeah, but they were, it was like considered nerdy, I guess. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, I went to Philly, Philly then, but never, I didn't know that they were hardcore shows or punk shows. I didn't know anything about that until I went to college. Mm -hmm. Did your early visits to Philly leave any particular impressions on you? Did you have a certain feeling for what, you know, what the city was like at the time or how it you know, made you feel coming into it? Uh, yeah, it's, you know, like any first time in a big city, I was impressed with, with uh, how much traffic there is and mm -hmm. how fast the traffic seems to go. It's just, it's, you get used to it after a while, but when you first come to the city and how, how tall the buildings are and things like that. Right. I remember somebody telling me uh, when I, you know, first time I was walking around downtown with a friend uh, from from college, told me stop looking up at the, I was like looking up the buildings and looking up like, wow. So don't do that because people will know that yeah, yeah, you're a target, <laughs> you're, you're not from around here. So you come in uh, for college, uh, and yeah. is that when you start to become aware of this kind of you know, underground scene within the city of Philadelphia? Uh, what's that again? When, when you came in to, to live here you know, at Temple as a student uh, in the early 80s, is that when you became aware of the fact that there was this underground music scene in the city? Yeah. Yeah, a friend of mine invited me to go with him to see, I think it was autistic... Sadistic exploits and autistic behavior and stickmen. It's like no, no out of town bands, all local bands, none of whom I've ever heard of before. Mm -hmm. Where was the show? Gonna, I think it was at some place called Elks Lodge. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure of the year. It might have been '81 or '82. I don't remember exactly. What did you think of those bands when you saw them? I just I love the stickmen. I was just completely blown away. It was like nothing I've ever heard before. And it was so energetic and and I bought their record when it came out. Slightly disappointing with the record compared to live shows, but I saw every live show that I could see by them and mm -hmm. and I played the record a lot too. Um, very I liked I liked all of the I liked all of the show. I liked I was impressed by the number of people at the show. It's like the size of the scene that I had no idea about and the way people dressed. Did you feel like a, an outsider in, uh, in this Yeah, world? completely outsider. Mm -hmm. And did you want to kind of be more integrated into yeah. that world? Okay. Um, I imagine that at some point you sort of, at least to some degree, were. Um, did you, as you started going to the shows, did you begin to feel more comfortable, you know, get to know different people, you know, feel like you were a part of this? this yeah, I was always, always a quite socially awkward person, uh, even in college, high school, college, and... Uh, so I wouldn't be, I would never, it would take me a lot to approach someone or even talk to someone. Mm -hmm. So if I would go to a show on my own, which I did from time to time, I'd just, if, if someone didn't approach me, I, I'd just be there totally by myself the whole time. Yeah. But still kind of in my own head, but enjoying it nevertheless, but I couldn't really... Uh, <laughs> yeah. So when did you start to... Integrate myself. Yeah. Um, so what you eventually started to be in bands, or was was Dead Milkman your first band, or were there? It was okay. Um, so how did that come to start to you know how did that come together? Well, the seeds of the Dead Milkman were planted when I was in high school, and um, I made I made tapes, cassette tapes with my neighbor for fun. We made we would like make uh, improv uh, ad lib comedy sketches on tape. Mm -hmm. We like uh, plan out what the uh, the scene was going to be, and then then record it. And 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 uh, who were you uh, influenced by? Like, uh, what comedians or uh, performers? Uh, I liked the Monty Python, the Steve Martin. I had some of his albums. I had a, I and I listened to Doctor Demento too. That was another radio show I listened to. Mm -hmm. And another, there's a show that came on after it. I don't even know what it was, but whatever show came on after it, after Doctor Demento, was on Sunday nights. They just played random comedy things. It wasn't Dr. Demento, but mm -hmm. that's where I first heard Steve Martin and, and things like that. And, and I don't know. That was, my, that was my influence, was Monty Python and I guess 
largely. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was copying. So were you calling yourselves, I mean, did you have, were you using the name? We were called the J-Rock Jerks. Okay. (laughs) But uh, I eventually started incorporating music into that and uh, those tapes. And at one point, I came up with the concept of Jack Jack Talcum and the Dead Milkman. And I made a newsletter uh, that... Uh, a fake fan club newsletter about this band called the Dead Milkman. It was called the Jack Talcum fan club newsletter. But Jack Talcum um, was kind of like this folk guy, uh, obnoxious folk singer character, sort of based on Bob Dylan, but not really. Mm-hmm. And he met he met this the Dead Milkman band, which is the punk band, and he integrated himself into that band in this in the backstory of the band somehow. Yeah. And, and sort of took the band over and formed what I was calling uh, folk punk or punk folk or what I think I called it folk punk, which I thought was a, 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 an hilarious combination of genres. But ultimately just like exists. But now it's, yeah, 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 I right. would never have guessed that that could be unhilarious, and, <laughs> right. but it's real. But then it was that, that was the whole idea of the Dead Milkman was Jack Talcum and the Dead Milkman. Uh, so I had, that, I had the story and I was writing the newsletters. Um, to go with it, I decided to make a tape, so I invited a Garth. A, my neighbor was named Garth, uh, and, and a friend of his, and my brothers and sisters, whoever was around, and we recorded the tape. I think it was like the end of 1979, New Year's Eve, uh, when most of it was recorded. <laughs> And you just distribute this so, to your yeah, friends some songs that I wrote. Because uh-huh. I've been writing songs, uh, too. I, I, when, always, I was fat, back in the days when I had was getting jukebox records, I was fascinated with the whole concept of, you know, I looked at the records, and the, this was a song, like Lennon and McCartney are the songwriters for the, these, these songs. Mm-hmm. I, I knew that before I knew that they were actually members of the band The Beatles. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be a songwriter, so I was... I was I'd been writing songs since I was in junior high school. And we recorded the, the, the tape and called it So Long 70s. And that tape, I made a few copies of it. Garth, my friend, gave it to Rodney, uh, who became the singer, Rodney, mm-hmm. uh, in, in high school. And I knew Rodney, but I didn't have any classes with him. Garth did. I, I knew him from sitting at the lunch table in 10th grade. I sat at the same lunch table with, uh, that he sat at, and then that became our unofficial assigned seats for the rest of the year, and that's where I talked to that's where I, that's where I knew him from. And he heard the tape and then approached me waiting for the bus after school one day and said, hey, I, I like that tape you made, uh, The Dead Milkman. When's your next uh, recording session? I would love to, love to be, be in it. I play banjo. <laughs> so well, he's, really, punk. he's really outgoing and really shy, so it's yeah. a good thing that he approached me. And I so, well, you know, whenever you want to have, a, we can have a session next this coming weekend if you like. <laughs> Let's do it. And he came over with his banjo, and we recorded some songs, and that became folk songs for the '80s. So this is where our first, two, and that's that's how Rodney became part of the the act, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess he moved to Philly at some point as well. Once he yeah, eventually he went to he went to high, he went to college in Westchester, but we collaborated through the mail, uh, through the post postal mail. Um, he sent tapes lyrics. back and forth. Yeah, just okay. we didn't, we weren't that sophisticated. He sent lyrics. And we'd see each other anyway, every, you know, month or so. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd record music to his lyrics. Basically, that's the way a lot of it worked back then. He'd write lyrics. He wrote lots and lots of lyrics, very prolific. And I would write music to as much of them as I could and record it and then let him hear it. Mm-hmm. So that was one way we, we did that. And I was still making these fictitious tapes. I could... I'd, compile songs I'd recorded and just make, I don't know, I must have made five or six cassette albums of the band before it was an actual band, mm-hmm. using like overdub. You still have these in the archives? I have most of them. I, I kind of went crazy after we broke up and I 
had a spell of uh, just not I've tossed some things, but I also just mailed some things out randomly to people who had mailed letters to the dead milkman. Oh, so they so, just got like a piece of, of history. Yeah, exactly. Were you very distraught? When I was kind of distraught. So there was like I don't, wanna, I don't want to skip too far in advance, but we'll go up and then we'll go back again. It's but like five and talking about. So yeah. some of them lo- fell out of my hands that way. Okay. Some of them, but most of them I still have. Yeah. Do you regret now having sent these things out? I do. I regret one in particular, one yeah. tape that I will probably never get back again. Uh, so you, you have no. But some of them came back to me actually, oh, like in nice. digital form. Right. Do they turn up on the internet? Yeah. We'll put them, okay. Yeah, well, I guess there is something good about that then. Yeah. Um, but we'll go back more towards the beginning. So when, when does the band begin to be, you know, the sort of band as we know it? Uh, as we know it, well, that's how Rodney came about. Um, I met Dave while in high school through his brother, Joe. His brother, Joe, lived in the same dorm as me, and I saw him move in with this great record collection <laughs> and overcame my shyness and approached him and because introduced of the myself. Records. Yeah, because of the records. And yeah. he had a mohawk and he was cool looking and punk and whatnot. And we got to be friendly and I mentioned to him that I, you know, I wanted to start a band. I talked to him about this Dead Milkman thing and, you know, it would be great if we could find a bass player and a drummer and that would round things out. He said, my brother is a bass player. I'll put you in touch with him. So a week or two later, his brother came over to the dorms and uh, we hit it off famously. We wrote a, our first song together that night and that was it. Yeah. And Dean came about not too long after that. I think Dave, Dave convinced me, I hated the dorms at, at Temple. He convinced me to, to move out into a house. So we found a place together in Maniunk. This is in 1982. Man, yuck. So <laughs> close to me. Not yeah. that anybody listening to this knows right. that, but... Uh. Exactly. <clears throat> and uh, this is before Maniunk was it, as trendy as it became. But anyway, it was the cheapest place we could... Cheapest place we could find to rent. <laughs> not as many house, college kids four, growing up on their flip-flops. Not and, yet, yeah. not yet. This, no, this is a four-bedroom, three-story house on Baker Street for $400 a month. Mm-hmm. And we got, we got three other people, we got two other people, so we had two, two other, another college uh, friend of mine who was the person actually told, told me about the punk show. He, he, his name was Kurt, and he, he was way in, he knew a lot more about alternative music than I did, and he, he was like my knowledge base <laughs> so are you absorbing you know, I absorbed like things from him yeah. yeah he was into things like uh, the birthday party and Joy Division all the stuff I had no idea because mm-hmm. stuff that wasn't covered by the stereo review high fidelity stuff <laughs> he was reading Enemy and the big takeover and zines and he he, put, he told, told me about I, I had no idea there was a zine culture either before I met him mm-hmm. so yeah we all moved in together a friend from from a friend of Dave's, my friend Kurt, and me, all four of us, into a house. And that was great fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, do you start playing live yeah. around the Well, time? Dave and I played a lot, and Rodney would come spend weekends there. And we'd have big songwriting sessions, recording sessions, and whatnot. So, a lot of a lot of the Big Lizard album was being written, and we didn't know it was going to be that album, but we were writing all those songs, recording them, and. We were looking for drummers. We had a few auditions that didn't go well, but I think it was the third one. The third guy that tried out was Dean, and I knew him from. He was a friend of uh, another college mate of mine, Dave. Another Dave, not Dave Blood. Uh, this Dave was Dave Reckner, who eventually became the manager of the Dead Milkman. But Dean was one of his best friends, and he was going to school at the Art Institute downtown and I don't know he just came for an audition in, in our house in Maniunk and it just clicked and then yeah it just right. yeah so what sort of clubs uh, or venues uh, spaces were you playing you know in the early uh, the early years in Philly what was around any any show we can get our our first show wasn't in Philly it was in Harleysville uh, 
but I think our first Philly show was outside uh, the, the Pine, it was on Pine Street on Antique Row. I think there's a place called Pine Street Beverage Room. I don't know if it exists anymore, but they hired us to play outside on like the uh, block party that they were having on Pine Street. Now, this so. is the first time you're really, you know, as a shy person, kind of going out in front of people and performing, right? Yeah. And how did you, were you able to kind of cope with that all right? Well, I had a, I had a, uh, a bout of stage fright uh, before our first show, but it didn't, it didn't, went once... Once the show started, it just it went away. Plus, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't the lead singer. Rodney, Rodney is a great front man, and he took care of everything basically. Mm-hmm. So, so you just kind of like come it. up to sing. Yeah, I would sing. I had a song to sing. Mm-hmm. Like usually, every show I had one song to sing. Right. So at the time, who who do you think were some of the, the more interesting of the Philly bands in the punk or underground scene that you were you know playing with or interacting with? FOD. Um, Electric Love Muffin. I remember seeing them when they, they were still called the Sunshine State, actually. But they became Electric Love Muffin. I really like that band. <laughs> uh, it's a, a band called the Johnsons, who were acquaintances of ours. I've never heard uh, them before. Uh, I mean, I know Electric Love Muffin, uh-huh. but I don't know the Johnsons. Um, the Fabulous Fondness, who, who I still see some of the, the I still see Bill from the Fabulous Fondness every now and then because he's in a, a band with my roommate, and he was in Rod, the band Rodney had after the Dead Milk and Burn, which burn. Uh, you know, there's, there's just the ones that come off the, that come to mind right away of, of the bands I liked. So I guess of all of the the bands in the Philly scene, it seems like Dead Milkman took off far more. Oh, there was Ruin too. I remember Ruin. Oh yeah, yeah, Ruin. Yeah, um, can't forget him. Yeah, sorry. Uh, no, it's fine. <laughs> but so, Dead Milkman kind of went much further out into the world than most of the other Philly bands that were in the punk scene, and certainly came to you know greater prominence. Um, so how how do you think that that? Why do you think that that was? I don't know. I know the Muffin toured and FAD toured and from what I hear FAD were more successful over in Europe. Uh, why, why, why that was, I don't know. I mean, none of those bands had like a video in, in rotation on MTV. Yeah, I don't even know how that, I don't even know why that was. <laughs> so, I mean, what's, this, what's the story behind this? Uh, like, how did this come to be? The video? Yeah, I mean, you decided you made a video. You know, there, I don't know of any other Philly bands uh, of the era that were making videos and that were playing on MTV. So you you made something. It ultimately wound up there. How did that come to be? Yeah, we made videos. We got we we uh, we were going to put out our first record on our own, but the funding just didn't just evaporated. Um, so we had we had a recording of ten songs that we thought were album worthy, and we shopped that around like sent it out sent it out to uh, record label like every record label we could find. Uh, mostly didn't get any response, and when we did get a response, it was no thank you. Mm-hmm. And we saw that there was this record label in Philly called Fever Records, and Dave. Dave Blood noticed this. Um, he got a record, I think, now I forget what the, I think the band was called Get Smart, but I might be wrong. And on the back it said Fever Records and the address was Philly. We're like, oh, this, this record company exists in Philly. And lo and behold, it's only a few blocks. The address is only a few blocks from where we rehearsed in South Philly. We were rehearsing on, on 9th Street back then. So, if I remember correctly, what we did, we, get, we brought our tape to him, in per, to that address in person maybe a six pack of a beer or something knocked on the door and uh this guy answered colin Cameron was his name he's turns out he's a professor at wharton now and, he is I'm no he was then oh, now he's not uh he's he's a somewhat famous i guess research person in behavioral psychology or something like that 
But to us, he, this is well. This guy answers the door, and we explain to him what. You know, <laughs> are you fever records? This is <laughs> was so an odd way to go about it. But this only information we had was his address. Yeah, no, beats <laughs> postage anyway. Yeah. A few blocks down the street. And to make a long story short, eventually he agreed to put out our album if we would record some more songs because the ten songs we had were really short. He thought that's only EP EP worthy, and he wanted something album worthy. So he, he funded, I don't know, it was less than $1,000, but he funded for us to go back to the same studio and record another 10 songs, which we did. Mm-hmm. And that album became the Big Lizard in My Backyard. And where am I going with this story? We're um, moving towards the music. <laughs> like, you know. the, he had on his label a band called The Effigies from Chicago, mm-hmm. who were hot. And this label out in California, Enigma, who I think was a label that we actually sent our tape out to and either got, either didn't get a response or got, we got no response or got rejected. They wanted the effigies on their label. So he did a deal with them. Mm-hmm. It was a package deal. Called package deal, P&D deal. Yeah. But it was like, take everybody or, that's how we got on to Enigma. It wasn't that we got to deal with the name we got to deal with fever and right. they lucked into having us whether they liked it or not because of the effigies so right. we have them to thank and they through their deal whatever it was we had to deal with fever but their deal had it so that we make videos for to promote the albums that's what you did mtv was one of the outlets for to promote uh, videos, they played vi- MTV played videos back then. Yeah, not like what they do now. I do remember that. Yeah. So the M stood for music. Yeah. And Phil- cable wasn't existing in Philly. I don't know if you know that, but so when, this is what when we were starting, yeah, cable for some for legal reasons that the, the city council still hadn't just. Sided on a franchise. So what? So the suburbs had cable. Yeah, the suburbs had cable. City, no so I'd go out to my parents' house and watch MTV or Rodney's parents or even Dave's, and I, we would do that. We would go out to Dave's parents and have practice out there sometimes, and then get our fill of MTV, this crazy new thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, I'm I'm diver- That's a diversion. Uh, there are no diversions <laughs> in the interview. <laughs> They're all diversions. The, the, yeah, so they would, they would be part of the funding for the record is you, there's some, some allotment to make a video for, so we did Hip, the thing that we said piece, that got played on, that got played on like this show, this is pre-120 Minutes, but there was a show that happened on Sunday nights, they, I don't even think they played the whole video, they just played a little bit what of show it, was, we were like, happy, show that was? like, oh wow, we're on MTV, <laughs> I don't remember it, but it was some show on, on MTV on Sunday nights. But it was the precursor to the 120-minute show that we actually hosted, guest-hosted ones. Nice. And the next, the next album, they gave us money to do Big Time Operator. And we didn't, we didn't decide which songs either. It was like the record company decided with this song. Cause they, uh, so we did that video, and that got played a couple times. And by now, 120 Minutes was a program that got played on it. Who so, was the host? Was it Dave Kendall at the time, or was there some? Yeah, they had different hosts. Yeah. I, maybe it was him. I don't remember names too well. Yeah, I barely do, but that one just happened to pop up. Uh-huh. I figured I'd throw it out there. And then the the song that they picked for the for for the fourth one, they, we didn't do a video for the first album. Uh, for the fourth album was Punk Rock Girl, which I thought was an odd choice. <laughs> Why did you and think that was such an odd choice? Because uh, because because it, it's not this the singer is is Rodney, right? And this, this is the this one's this you. Is, yeah, this one's me. Yeah. But whatever we did we did the song, we we liked the we liked the director of the previous video, Adam Bernstein Bernstein. So we got we used him for that one too. And just like any other video, we figured it's going to get played once or twice in one twenty minutes, and that'll be it. Mm-hmm. But yep. who knows why this one uh, got put into, I guess, rotation and so it was they had a show like called Dial in, right? Like, well, they put it lightly at first, and there's a show called Dial in TV, and I'm not sure the, how that works behind the scenes, but supposedly people dial people. They have a certain amount of time that you call in and vote for videos, phones. but I don't know how. How the video, our video, got to be in contention on that program, but when it did, it it, 
it kept going up week after week until I actually reached number one in the dial. So you beat, you know, Bon Jovi or whatever. Yeah, it's like something crazy like that. Maybe people are alert. People are, they just, you know, they get a kick out of the video and they want to see this obscure band. Yeah. uh, That's how it got on MTV. So all of a sudden you're in great prominence, you know, clearly. Yeah, we're we're in the middle of a tour when this is happening too. Is it a weird thing that you wind up suddenly coming, you know, to the fore where you weren't normally singing and then, you know, is, is Rodney yeah. a little grouchy about that It's kind of disconcerting. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah. It was a little odd. So I saw a video of you on, uh, what is it, Club MTV, I think? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, have you seen and that? And we, we actually recently? said, we, the record company, I guess, put that, put that all together and got, got us there. Who knows? Maybe somebody on the, at the on the record company was having was dating somebody on on MTV. Who knows how these things happen? Right. But the right thing happened at the right time or the wrong time, depending on your perspective. That, no, <laughs> and that, I remember saying we don't want to. I remember <laughs> for saying no. Let's we can't do this club MTV. This is not our style of music, mm-hmm. and it's not going to work. So we said no to it, it works several times. Amazingly, you can't, you can't say no is what right. the answer we got. <laughs> yeah. Like not after <laughs> you can't say no, so we said okay. Well, if you can't say no, then we made these demands like we need a. <laughs> I don't know what Rodney's playing. What, what instrument is he playing? Some crazy. I don't. I don't tuba mean, or something. Uh, I don't know what it is. So clearly, you're not playing the song. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and it was what uh, and Julie we, Brown. We, I we think got we like... got our friend Chris uh, to throw rubber worms out into the dancers uh-huh. we bought a bunch of rubber worms from fishing supply and <laughs> those were those were being thrown back up at us and at, at a downtown julie brown yes <laughs> how, does, how does she you feel you barely about see them on the video but you, but you see she was chaos. Okay. she was she, on on camera she held she held herself up pretty well but behind the scenes she was upset and it probably had something to do with us not getting played anymore. I don't know. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know if it did, but... Uh, it, was, it is a fantastic piece. I mean, I've seen this thing, and uh, yeah, it's pretty great. I can't imagine that any of the other bands... And I'm sure they didn't show it more than once. I, I think somebody <laughs> taped it off of the, the actual broadcast, and it's kind of yeah. circulated around uh, since then. You know, it's like, look how... Oh, yeah, we wanted to use that, too, on our uh, DVD collection that got put out in 2003. But it just... It, the record company went. It, it, the, the 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 price. It was basically MTV put a ridiculous price tag on the footage, mm-hmm. maybe to prevent it from being used. I don't know. Maybe that's just what they do. And right. and and, and Riker wouldn't do it. Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't go for it. <laughs> it would have gone over quite well. Yeah. Uh, so do you find like the the Philly bands who are around at the time are they kind of razzing you because you've kind of you know suddenly you're on MTV and you're doing these these things? Yeah, we got a little bit of that, but whatever. Yeah. So things go on. I mean, clearly you've made many records over uh-huh. many years, and it's a tremendous lifespan for a band. I mean, how how do you manage to keep this whole thing together? I mean, usually people's personalities begin to. Well, we didn't. We actually broke up. But for one thing, we one of the things that I think helped us stay together, where other bands fell apart at the same time, is that we were actually making uh, money. We were making a living off of it, and that was our that was our living. Mm-hmm. And I think if if we had split, what what are we gonna do? We have to go find jobs, and <laughs> another worst. We don't want to do. We don't yeah. want to do that. We're this is the job, job of a lifetime. So, to keep that job going, you can tolerate personality differences. Right. And there weren't that many really. And from maybe I was living in in maybe I had my head in the sand. Right. So what precipitated the the end of the band? Um, personality different, not, not, not necessarily, is not seeing eye to eye on the goals of the band, I think. So what year is this that you initially... It was at the end of 93. We had, we had this tour booked for the Not Richard Partick album, uh, or EP, um, that spanned the end of 93 and into 94, and it was all booked all the way uh, through till the spring, but... The first leg ends right before Christmas, and the second leg begins like I don't know in January, beginning of January. So we had this break, and at the beginning of the break, uh, I remember Dean called called a band meeting, and didn't say why, but 
the turns out that he the meeting was his him announcing his departure from the band after the end of the tour. So he said, "I'll finish this tour, but then I don't want to be in the band anymore. Right. You guys are welcome to replace me." You want yeah, right without him. So that to me was a bombshell, uh, as was I'm sure to Rodney and Dave. After that meeting, I talked to to Dave, and we talked about you know the other drummers we knew and. Uh, I did, what our ideas were, what, what we can go forward. But then, within a week, I think, Rodney came to us and said, you know what, uh, I've been thinking as well, and I don't, I don't want to continue with the band after this tour either. I think that's, that's my memory of the, the chronology of that. Um, in between that, we, had, we, were, we were having discussions, the three of us, maybe about, well, I'm actually at this meeting. I tried to convince Dean to stick with it if we would, you know, not tour because I knew his his problem was that touring was too much, uh, too much time out of our lives to make a living out of the band. We had to devote at least half a year to touring, and he had a wife and was had plans to have, raise a family, etc. So. What he really wanted to do was go back to school and he was a graphic designer, that's what he went to school for at Art, Art Institute, and, and learn web. And this is, this is when the internet was becoming fascinating. This is 93, is when, uh, you know, the early... Yeah. You know, Rodney was into it then, too. Uh, I think I was the only dead milk that actually did not have a computer. At the and and did not even get did not get on the internet. The, all the other three guys did, and they would talk about this. So that was a fascinating thing, and it's understandable that he would want to want to want to do that. But I thought, well, why don't we just become this local? We don't have to tour. We can we can sit sit tight in Philly and let people come to us if they want to see our shows, and we'll we'll just make albums. Sort of like what the Beatles did when they mm-hmm. stopped touring, even though they didn't play any shows at all. Right, right. Now, was, was, was this Dave thing? Dave was uh, absolutely against that because he loved the touring aspect the most, mm-hmm. and he said, "Well, if we're not gonna if we're not gonna tour, then I want to also do something else." So we were thinking, okay, replace replace Dean with another drummer, and we'll continue to be a touring band. But then Rodney came to us and said, no, I don't want to do the touring anymore. It's, it's you know, wearing me down, too. Wow. So, that, that then so that, that's, what I, that's, what, that's when we decided, okay, we'll just end. And then you lose your marbles. We lose our marbles. Yeah, then I lose my marbles, but that was until 95. Oh, okay. I mean, what, is, what is the gap between uh, like what happens in the years? Well, we, we, recorded, uh, we recorded our final album. We wrote, we wrote it actually, we wrote and rehearsed it and recorded it in 94. I mean, I got a job at a coffee shop. Um, Did you begin to look into starting other bands? I was in another, way? I had a side project called Touch Me Zoo, but that also started to fizzle uh, for personality reasons. Although, I think that, that band, that band lasted probably longer than it should have, but we, we kept it was like a revolving, it was the revolving bass player mm-hmm. syndrome we had in that band right. until it just ended. But yeah, I had that side project and uh, I was doing anything I could. I, I uh, a f- another friend of mine who was in a band with Dean called Baby Flamehead, Andy, uh, approached me about putting a band together, and we did, and that was called Butterfly Joe. So he put that band together and we made an album. We did, I did all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe too many things all at once. Right. <laughs> and and my a friend of mine, uh, per, actually wasn't a friend. He just kind of showed up on my doorstep. But I met him at, on the last show of the last tour of the Dead Milkman. His name is Chris. Um, we formed a band together called the Town Manager, so I had that going as well. Mm-hmm. So eventually, Dead Milkman comes back together, though, at least temporarily. I mean, you do reunion show, right? We do under unfortunate circumstances. We do a reunion show because Dave took his own life, Dave Blood, 
in 2004. Um, Were you, did you know that, that, that he was sort he of... He was depressed. Mm-hmm. So did you know that he was... I had like, some inkling that he, I mean, I didn't understand depression. I thought as well as I do now. But uh, I didn't know that, that he was having a hard time of it then. But his mother had died, passed away a month before, and he was really close to her. And he was taking care of her. She had cancer. He was taking care of her uh, right up until she died. Uh, but it still was a shock. So it wasn't. And I saw, I saw him. Last time I saw him was at her funeral, and he seemed pretty together under the circumstances. He was holding himself together pretty well. So it was a total shock that he, that he, he took his own life. Um, later that year, this is 2004, uh, Joe, uh, Dave's brother, Dave's other brother, not Joe, but his brother Kurt, another brother of his, uh, approached us, me in particular, about uh, performing Dead Milkman songs at uh, a memorial show that he and his brother Joe were putting together uh, for Dave. Mm-hmm. Where was that featuring from? like other bands that Dave liked? Mm-hmm. Uh, Where was that to be? Ruin might have. That was at uh, Trocadero. So and Chris, my friend from the town managers, helped in in uh, in doing the logistics for that whole thing. Uh, so and his, his Kurt's idea was that uh, we. We could play using, you know, you know, bass players, all, all kinds of bass players that would be willing to, to sit in and play play the songs. Mm-hmm. So I asked Dan Stevens, we called him Dan Drew, uh, who was in the band Low Budgets with me at the time. This is Low Budgets are a band that uh, formed after the town managers broke up. It was with me and Chris, the same person with in the town managers. This guy who was going by Chris Peel out. Um, uh, he the low budgets was his concept and he asked me to instead of playing guitar which is what I played in town I managed to play organ uh, and and Dan played the bass so I asked Dan to play the bass I knew he was a huge Shed Milkman fan already um, and and it turns out he knew a lot of the songs better than we he taught retaught us the songs <laughs> as far as the chords go right. <laughs> So and it went over it, well. And it went, we we learned. We rehearsed a lot, and we, it went over well. And I think we did we did well for Dave's memory. Raised a lot of money for a suicide uh, awareness prevention organization. And that I thought was going to be it. We played these two the, this uh, this show this memorial show in two thousand four. Um, but four years later, we got uh, an offer to play a festival in Austin called Fun 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 Fest. Was this like a was it a big like weekend thing outdoor? Yeah, it's, it's it's like a two day maybe th- yeah uh, outdoor festival in in November when it's really nice in Austin. Yeah, really shitty here. <laughs> really shitty here. So there's a good reason to go there. Yeah, and huge. Like three stages, lots of bands. Also a stage for comedy acts. Man. Um, so after after a bunch of saying no, just like we did to Club MTV, mm-hmm. we got this. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> I can make this worth your while. Yeah, I can imagine the money was probably the money, pretty good yeah. if it got you. <laughs> the, the, the money is like something we'll probably ne- never earn before, or maybe never again. <laughs> this this completely ridiculous figure. Plus, I'll pay for your hotel. Plus, I'll pay for your plane. Yeah, how, how can you, can you, you turn this down? No that. Right, right. And the guy was saying, you know, there are bass players. That, there's like a dozen bass players in Texas, in Austin, that'll play for you guys. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, bass players isn't the problem. The problem is that we're not. You know, we have to. That that wasn't the problem. But after the after. After the, the offer we couldn't refuse, <laughs> we did the show, and it was so much fun. So was there anything else after... Why not keep the, doing it? Was it? Why not keep doing it? So you did. Other offers came through, too, that were mm. really considerable for other festivals. Right. So you took them up as well? Yeah, we started to... 
we started to. But do right now, is there? There's no. You're not performing now, though, right? Where are you? Yeah, we are. Time? We've oh, been okay. performing since. Okay. We just don't tour. That's mm-hmm. the thing. We don't do. We don't go on any real tours like we used to, mm-hmm. because. Because uh, well, Dean has a family, but D- Andrew, the Dan, the bass player, he has he has a young family, uh, three little boys, and uh, unless we all have our date, we're kind of s- settled. Right. So you've moved through many bands over the years, and you've managed to remain in a very you know ever changing, crazy music business. I mean, even if it's based out of Philadelphia, you're, you know you're constantly creating and producing and you know making records, uh, which is pretty impressive. I mean, did you think that you'd be able to kind of pull this off, you know, to this point, to this age? No, I don't, I didn't, didn't give it any thought that, in that respect. I never, 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 never thought that, I always hoped the Dead Milk would get back together again, but I kind of thought, because I'm sort of like this pessimist, I guess, that it's not going to happen. And then when Dave, Dave died, I thought, well, now it's, now it's definitely not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it did, and the way it did, and that Dan filled Dave's shoes so well, I never would have dreamed that it dreamed. Um, and and, and now, now we have our, our own record company, which is kind of what we wanted to do in the very beginning. Right, so you had the complete control, right? Now we have complete control, which we didn't have then. It kind of worked out. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of glad, and and we're actually pressing up physical records, which is insane to think. I never thought I I I know that it's trendy hipster thing to like, but I was sad in the '90s when like uh, when the rec- when uh, I found out Soul Rotation wouldn't be on vinyl, mm-hmm. <laughs> released on vinyl. Cause that was my preferred format, even. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I think there's still there's still great pockets of people all yeah. over the world who want a physical format, and um, you know the LP is like the most beautiful of all of them. Yeah, it's um, kind of crazy though, but I I agree that it's insane, but it's still fun to do. <laughs> so do you feel that you're generally are you fairly happy in the position that you've you know wound up in now? Life in general. Yeah, I'm I'm happy middle aged fifty year old guy. And you still live in Pretty Philly. Much. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, super. Well, I mean, it's been uh, it's been great talking to you. Yeah. Thanks. It was uh, fun. Thank you.